Welcome back to Brazil Crypto Report. Today, I'm joined by Kim Grauer, Director of Research at Chainalysis. We dive into the key findings from the Chainalysis 2023 Geography of Cryptocurrency Report, and specifically how Brazil and Latin America rank in crypto adoption compared to the rest of the world. Okay, amazing. So we are here today with Kim Grauer, who's the head of research at Chainalysis. Kim, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Amazing, amazing. Uh, it's great to have you back. I think I had you maybe about 18 months ago, uh, back when we first started up this podcast, actually. So it's uh, we love our repeat guests. Great to have you back. Uh, why don't you give yourself a quick introduction and uh, who you are and what you do at Chainalysis? Yeah, thanks for having me again. Uh, I remember the last time I was on the podcast for this report. And um, my name is Kim Grauer. I'm the director of research at Chainalysis. I have been at Chainalysis for over six years doing various forms of public facing research. We try to extract insights from blockchain data and put the kind of the most the most interesting stuff in these long 100 page reports. Uh, our crime report comes out once a year where we really zone in on um, cr crime events. And then we also just try and tackle anything we can that might be of interest to, um, I, I think we, we like to tackle the most burning questions. So what are the questions that are the hardest to answer that the industry needs to know the most? And we tend to really zone in on those on my team. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. And it, it's, it's definitely, uh, the gold standard, I would say, I mean, not to try to flatter you here, but like, I, I just find like the chain analysis reports tend to be just kind of the gold standard as far as uh, blockchain research and analytics goes. There's just few, if any comparable products uh, out there on the market right now. So congratulations on uh, really just some awesome findings. Thank um, you so much for saying that. Thank you. Yeah. And, and so maybe just to get started, why don't you talk a bit about, just give us an introduction to this geography of cryptocurrency report and uh, like how long have you guys been doing it? What are you looking for? What, what's, what's sort of the impetus for, for, you know, doing it in the first place? I believe this is our fourth, maybe fifth iteration of the, of the geography of crypto report, probably fourth, potentially fifth. And what started us doing this is uh, five years ago, we were, like I said, doing a lot of crime research and our high, the, the, probably the biggest number that's associated with chain analysis is that 1% of all transactions are associated with no associated with known illicit wallets. And we really do a, we really work to break that down and emphasize what that is. And I remember we were talking to our CEO, one, uh, Michael Groniger, who's the best. And he, we were presenting him some of this research and he was like, okay, great. But what about the other 99%? And I just have that burned in my mind because I was like, oh, interesting question. And the truth is that's a much harder question because when you receive money from a ransomware wallet, it's very clear what's going on. But when you receive money from an exchange or between two exchanges, there's many different types of activity that that could represent. And so we didn't have a really smart, good way of answering that. And when we started, we went to the drawing boards, we tried to, okay, what are the transfer sizes? What are the, what are the um, times of day of these transfers? And the real kind of aha moment was when we started incorporating geographic information. And we realized that the reason why that's so hard to answer is because 
there's a strong geographic component to that answer. People around the world use cryptocurrency for many different reasons. And when you start to break down what's happening in specific countries, the question becomes a lot more manageable and easier to answer. So what's happening in Hong Kong? What's happening in Nigeria? With our geographic data, we can really treat try triage those questions more effectively than kind of this amorphous, how are, are people really using cryptocurrency? Because when, especially in the North America and the United States, people are so um, in, ingrained in their own circumstances. So their, um, their world that they don't, they, they wonder, oh, it's just financial entertainment and gambling as to what, why people are using cryptocurrency. But in reality, there's so many other things. So the geography report was trying to flesh out all those use cases and that's where it began. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you for that background. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, right? It's like, what, what about the other 99% of people that are using this for you know non-illicit things? Like who are these people? What are they using it for? Like, why is this a value to them? And uh, yeah, that's a great way of framing it. Right. Uh, in a great way of kind of countering, uh, you know, maybe or maybe maybe a reframe of of some of the the current uh, narratives around crypto publicly, right? Which are not, you know, maybe the most flattering at the moment. Um, so I'm going to share my screen here, um, and we're gonna we're, we're pulling up uh, some of the uh, the actual report from this year. And uh, for those who are just listening to the audio on this, we will be as descriptive as possible. Uh, but I am sharing the. Uh, my screen here. We'll be walking through some of the some of the data, some of the slides. So, starting off here, uh, you have the top twenty countries ranked by adoption globally. Uh, Brazil comes in at number nine. Uh, we have a couple of other LATAM countries: Argentina and Mexico. At I believe is fifteen and sixteen. And basically, like this overall index ranking have, uh, is is a composite of five other uh, kind of sub uh, sub indices, essentially. And, and Kim, I'm just hoping you could like maybe walk us through like what are these different kind of sub indexes and then or ind indexes or indices. I never know how to say that, but whatever. Uh, maybe walk us through what each of these things are and like what you're trying to measure with each of these. Well, what I think the reason why we're doing this, this you see this data here is because we're trying to capture adoption by region, by country, but. No, it's really hard to compare countries with vastly different populations and GDPs directly to each other. So how do you compare Brazil to UAE, you know, different, totally different economies and population sizes? So the first thing that we wanted to do with the index was make it so that we can compare directly countries. So everything in the index is weighted for population GDP purchasing power when appropriate. And, but then once you account for that, then you have an even tougher question of what does adoption mean? What does it, what does adoption mean? Like how would you, what's the number? Is it the number of users maybe, or is it the, like the way people are using cryptocurrency? Is it, if um, there's grassroots adoption, is it institutional adoption? Is it people using it for commercial purposes? There's so many ways that you can think about measuring adoption. There's not just one number. This is the adoption. So the five sub-indices, I'll go with indices, was uh, each of those are a different way of thinking about adoption. And each of we have centralized value received, retail value received, peer-to-peer -peer activity, DeFi value, and retail DeFi. 
And each of those are a different component of adoption. So centralized exchanges is just looking at the total value received. Retail is looking at the total value received of small payments less than $10,000. And that's important because we want this, we want to weight this index more towards grassroots adoption, everyday people using crypto. If you are at all familiar with on-chain data, you'll know that there's um, an outlier problem in the sense that one day there will be a $700 million transfer leaving a main ex a big exchange. And then all of a sudden you're deal you're dealing with completely different data set. So, um, so we want to weight things away from, you know, the, the major institutions and towards everyday people. Peer-to-peer -peer activity is also a way to capture that. Peer-to-peer uh, -peer activity is really popular in, in certain um, countries where there's less established banking relations with crypto exchanges, and so the peer-to-peer -peer markets really take off. Then we have DeFi, which we added in DeFi about two years ago. We kind of realized we were making the index, and we were like, shoot, there's the DeFi problem. We are not capturing... Um, DeFi data and centralized exchange data is very different, and I'm happy to talk to you about that, but I won't kind of open that can of worms right now. And then retail DeFi, which is kind of the same concept of retail, but for DeFi. And all of those we um, we calculate, and then we turn each of those into a sub kind of index using just the basic way that indices across multiple metrics are calculated, and then... Um, Average it out to one number. It's, it's good to capture things in exactly one number. <laughs> yeah, that's super interesting. And I, and I like the way you guys have broken it up because it does, at least intuitively, it feels like you're covering every area, especially now that you've included the DeFi components. It does feel like you're including, including the main uh, ways by which people use crypto or transact with crypto, at least. Like you've got kind of the centralized exchange, uh, you know, kind of the aggregate number, and then the, the retail number, which is basically anything less than $10,000. And then uh, the same for DeFi, uh, where you have your DeFi whales, then you have kind of your DeFi plebs, I guess, people like me, uh, you know, who, are, yeah. you know, try to farm our random coins and, you know, hopefully we can sell them and make some money on them, I guess. Um, so that's super helpful as a way to break it down. And then just looking at this, at this uh, list here, so you've got uh, each country, you know, so in top 10 is like India, Nigeria, Vietnam, US, Ukraine, Philippines, Indonesia, Pakistan, Brazil, and You've got the overall composite ranking and you've got each of these countries uh, ranked based on each of these sub indices as well. And, and it's interesting that a, a lot of these will, uh, you know, like India, for example, comes in number one in every area uh, with the exception of P2P, uh, where it's five, which is still pretty high. Right. And then a lot of but with some of these other ones, there's a bit more variance. Right. So like with U.S., for example, it's it's basically, you know, top three and pretty much everything. Uh, with the exception of P2P and then uh, like retail, like retail centralized exchange volumes. Um, so you, it's, it's kind of, you can kind of extrapolate a bit of, of the profile of each country just based on these numbers. So I think it's a really like, you know, really helpful kind of way of looking at this. Um, I want to move over to, um, I'm going to just moving over to like the Latin America section of the report here. And and could you maybe just kind of set us up with some color on like on on uh, just maybe some like just big picture conclusions or findings from Latin America that we've got a couple of charts here 
on the screen illustrating uh, some of the stats that that were, came out of the report. Um, but Kim, could you maybe just kind of give us an overview of like what was interesting about Latin America this year? Latin America is a really interesting market because of the, uh, and it's interesting in different countries. So you have Venezuela, you have Argentina, you have Brazil, and then um, Mexico. And those are, have really interesting crypto adoption stories for various reasons. As a, on the whole, Latin America this year was about 7%, 7.3% of the total global markets. And it's actually been pretty consistent around uh, that level over the past few quarters. There are a few regions that are making moves in their ranking and Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America are actually not really one of them. So North America, for example, was surging um, a few years ago and now is actually in a little bit of a decline. And what's what's really growing is Central Southern Asia and Oceania over the past uh, since 2020. And then some um, like the MENA region, the Eastern European region um, and the. Um, yeah, and Eastern Asia are growing. And so. Latin America is about pretty consistent um, growth over time. And if you look at the top countries, you've got Argentina and Brazil that are the biggest adopters in terms of the total value received, followed by Mexico, Colombia, and Venezuela. Um, those are, you could do a PhD thesis on each of those as to what's driving activity. But um, on the whole, there is meaningful crypto activity in almost every, I think every country in Latin America where we're able to try trace web traffic, meaningful web traffic from um, people to cryptocurrency businesses. Um, on, I think that some differentiators of Latin America might be a really high percentage of overall activity happening on centralized exchanges and relative to others. So lower DeFi adoption than in other regions, which I think makes sense with some of the interviews that I had with people where I mean, you can only draw so many conclusions from interviews, but it was pretty much uh, we don't care about crypto or technology and blockchain. We care about preserving value. This was particularly true in Venezuela and Argentina, where there's not this kind of people who are passionate about crypto and where you might find a crypto bro in, in the United States. It's really about pre preserving value and that being kind of the only options that they really have to um, get a bridge to the dollar. That makes sense. Much more of a pragmatic uh, use case, right? Rather than an ideological thing, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And I guess one other point that I found interesting was that uh, it says on this chart here, it says Latin America comprised about 7.3% of total cryptocurrency received in the world uh, during the period measured July 22 through June 2023. And that 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 seven point three percent is like roughly in line with Latam's like the total like world population. I think it's the world population is like it's like eight percent of people in the world live in Latin America. So that number is, I guess, where you would expect it to be. I suppose um, you can maybe argue right. it's even punching a bit above its weight uh, in that sense, based on their total population. Um, I'm just going to move on to the uh, the rest of the next charts here, and um, you know, really quickly. Um, you know, or however much time you want to spend on these, I guess, but this is just kind of, we're looking at some charts here that are basically 
looking at, uh, you know, just regional transaction volume by transfer size. You have like large institutional, institutional, uh, all the way down to like smaller retail. And we've got some nice kind of bar graphs that are sort of mapping that out based on like those types of transaction sizes based on region. Uh, but anything noteworthy you want to share from these charts here? Oh, I, I talked about the second one a little bit where you can see LATAM has a little bit of a higher centralized exchange adoption rate. The, the top chart on transaction volume is where we segment out the transfer sizes and then attribute them to regions. So you can see which what share of all transactions are going from regions are in each region. And here you can really see the problem with outlier activity where how much of the activity is in those large institutional or institutional sized um, transactions. And there's, you know, there's a healthy variety in Latin America as with every region. The only kind of major takeaway from this slide is that North America has an insanely large institutional market relative to other regions. But Latin America, you've got a little bit of everything. You've got small retail, large retail, professional, institutional, large institutional happening um, in all the in all the places you would expect it. Yeah, Latin America almost has the identical profile here to uh, Eastern Europe, which is which is maybe not not surprising, but also to Eastern Asia. Where I would assume I would have assumed that there'd be a lot more kind of like large institutional size transactions coming out of Asia, um, so that was a bit of like a, a surprise to me. I, I would expect, but I, maybe there's just enough smaller retail and uh, professional size transactions there to kind of offset some of the institutional ones. But I was expecting to see more institutional activity out of Asia. Uh, anyway, just so that's very interesting. Um, and yeah, then and we're gonna move. I, I would have too. Uh, there's a lot of commercial activity happening out of Eastern Asia. Almost every counterpart, when you find examples, which is hard to find, of international commercial activity happening on the rails of crypto because it's kind of an unreported gray market. So you really have to kind of get people to go out on a limb to talk about it publicly. China is almost always the counterparty of the of the international transaction. So there's a big commercial component and informal market in Eastern Asia. Yeah, that's that's definitely something I've been coming across more and more as well. Is how, uh, yeah, all of these kind of the commercial activity all kind of stems stems from China in one form or another as a counterparty. Um, and then you devote a bit of a, a section here uh, on this slide to uh, talking a bit about how Bra like you know Brazil's transaction volume uh, on a monthly basis, and then kind of how that's compared to, to previous years. And um, you've got a nice chart here breaking out the different transaction sizes or the different transaction segments broken out by month. And I think what's maybe most notable here is that you have a massive uptake in November of 2022, which is when FTX collapsed and people were kind of freaking out trying to get their money out of the exchange, I guess, which probably accounts for the, the large institutional volumes. Uh, but maybe talk us through what was what's interesting about this chart here is there anything anything noteworthy or is this does this more or less track with what you've seen in other regions or is this is this is there something novel about about the the transaction flows uh, uh in brazil during this period brazil is a huge institutional market and there's a really it's a really mature market there's a lot of businesses that are um professionally getting into the kind of the kind of a similar kind of hedge fund space so um so the only kind of really interesting and unique thing about Brazil from this specific chart um, is, I mean, if it moves with international, it, it moves with kind of 
the what you see across most regions. The only the only major thing is like the large the larger share of large institutional institutional payments that we see. Got it. Got it. And and you you noted here also that um, you know in 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 this report and in previous reports that Brazil really resembles more of a like a North American or European market. Uh, than a Latin American market just because of some of that institutional um, activity. And just wondering, uh, you know, what type of, you know, are you able to discern like what types of institutions might be behind this volume? Uh, is this mainly coming from exchanges? Is it like kind of hedge funds? Is it, um, you know, we, we've also had like just a lot of just stable coin usage in Brazil lately. I think like something like 80% of the reported figures are in USDT now. It's like 3 billion a month essentially. So that's really been ticking up, uh, but would be interested if you have any additional color on, on any of that. Well, when I looked at the order book data for Brazil, it was closer to 50% U U tether volumes, but this ended, um, this was ending, you know, about a, a while ago. So it could certainly have been different in, in the month of October and early November. I think that we have seen a lot of a lot more examples of institutional activity and and hedge funds and um brazil specific large successful services that have been becoming important global players and i think that has to do with many things the demand is the demand for exposure to these assets is certainly one but also um work being done on the regulatory front to to accommodate some of these services, the, some of this activity is another kind of open-ended thing that's contributing to the situation. But if we look at order book data, which is different from on-chain data, about 50% of, of Brazilian activity is um, stable coins. And that is based in what is traded against the Brazilian real, which is might be different than the total traded because not every trade is going into um, the Brazilian real. If you have Bitcoin, you might be trading for Tether directly and then that would not be captured. So this is just what fiat pairs are dealing with. And we show the trading against the Brazilian real specifically to highlight how it relates to the Argentinian peso, where almost 80% of all purchases of, from the Argentinian peso are with Tether specifically. And in Brazil, there's a higher Bitcoin percentage. So 25% of all purchases with the Brazilian real are Bitcoin. And where they really stand out is altcoins, which to me, this shows the is more evidence of the institutional trading activity rather than just the what we talked about practical let's get exposure to the us dollar almost 20 percent of all the trades against the brazilian real are in altcoin and we can compare that to just a couple percentage points of trading against for altcoins against the argentinian peso yeah that's a super illustrative chart i'm really glad you guys you guys put this one together because i think it does it does highlight the kind of the, the divergent value propositions uh in 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 both of these respective countries um if we could maybe turn back to the stable coin portion again um i guess i guess we don't have a chart on this but but um but you're mentioning that like basically 50 percent of at least as of you know when when you concluded with the research for this report but 50 percent of 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 you know, order book data was was in stable coins uh, paired with Brazilian real. And um, 
it's interesting because basically like the last like data we have from the the tax authority here which which people are, are people have to report their their trades to um it was showing i think it was for like either july or august but it was showing like 80 percent of the volume was was in tether and probably about like 85 percent was stable coins like usdc was maybe like five percent or something and i guess i i'd be interested to hear maybe double click on this point a little bit more be like what what do you think accounts for that divergence where if you have I mean, granted, maybe not everybody is like reporting, you know, things accurately or whatever, but like, why would the order book data be different from, or like, you know, 30, 30 percentage points different from what, yeah. what's being, what's being reported to the, to the, the government officially? I, I think they can both be right at the same time. I mean, there's a lot of different data happening. So people are purchasing at a 50% rate, the real for um, stable coins, but then they're, that's just onboarding from the from the actual fiat currency. And that's just the that's just what we then. In fact, most traders don't want to touch fiat if they're actively trading because they are that's a taxable event. So there's a lot of um, but there's a potential that both are true. And um one might be more capturing of trading. So people onboard into Bitcoin maybe, and then try and get some gains and, and pair it with Tether to lock in their gains. And so both can be true. If we just look at on-chain activity um, as well, that would be another different story to trading activity. So on order book data is what are the actual trades that are being bought and sold? Many of the institutional traders are not going to use an order book. They are going to use an OTC. They are going to just do on-chain transactions. They might even be on DEXs at this point. And so that is yet another data point, which, and if we just look at the on-chain data, then stable coins are by far the fastest growing asset. So um, I don't think we have this chart and I don't want to mess it up, but if you want an up into the right chart, it's the share of all blockchain activity that is going to stablecoin activity. It is the it is it is not has not experienced a decline month in years, and every year it's capturing more and more of the blockchain share. And I think that's probably um, because of this institutional activity happening on chain, and the fact that over the past few years, I think stablecoins have um, hit a turning point with their global acceptance. There was a few years back in 2018, 2019, where people wondered, oh, what's happening with Tether? And I think that now people are more comfortable with stable coins. And um, I think that that's really reflected in the data. Well, that's super interesting. And that, yeah, that does seem to be, I mean, that just kind of matches anecdotally, I guess, with, with, you know, all the sentiment and all the narratives we hear from different other actors in the space, right? That, that, that the demand for stable coins is not, decreasing in any meaningful way at this point it's really only going up even even despite some of the the other woes in the market um one other i guess one other thing i want to just maybe double click on a little bit here is this this top chart that we have here that's comparing brazil retail and professional driven volumes and essentially what you're seeing here in this chart is that small retail and large retail transaction volumes were basically the same uh, throughout the period measure, there wasn't really a meaningful uptick or or downtick at all from July 22 to to June 23. But uh, the professional uh, kind of 10,000 to 1 million size transactions, there was quite a bit more volatility. And, and some of that was due to the FTX collapse. 
Um, uh, but just kind of wondering, like, is what's significant about this chart in your view? And, um, you know, I guess it, how notable is it that, I guess what I found most interesting is that the, the small and retail volumes maintain were the same, basically, even throughout this, frankly, it was like a pretty bad year <laughs> for crypto. Uh, but like, you know, people continued to transact, right? So there's obviously people are still, there's some, some degree of confidence remaining in this, uh, in this, this space here. I think it's a really important point what is happening in this chart and institutional professional activity is exactly what you said it's pretty volatile i mean all activity in crypto is pretty volatile um but it's very susceptible to large news events what's happened with ftx you're certainly right it was a really bad year overall but retail and small retail remaining consistent it checks out with how we think of adoption, where adoption is not a crazy headline in the news. Oh, um, people in Nigeria have continued 2%, you know, uh, increases in their adoption over time. We want to see steady, stable, flat, flat and slightly elevated um, adoption for some of the smaller retail activity that's sustainable that's something that you can sustain over a long period of time. These exponential growth of um, activity, that's not sustainable. And so this makes sense with what we're seeing and um, speaks to which, co which segments of the market were most impacted by the volatility of last year or were impacted by the news of FTX and some of the other stuff that's happening. And um, yeah, so it's this is another reason why we need to subset out the data based on the, the potential population of people that are being reflected. So the small retail versus the large institutional is a complete a completely different world of crypto users. Yeah, absolutely. No, that that's super helpful. I'm really glad you guys were able to break this out. That's a very great great graphic there. Um, one other question I had, or I have a couple other questions, but what the next question I have is. Um, going back to kind of the P2P, uh, issue, I'm going to, um, just go back to our regular view here, but, uh, on the P2P front, uh, over the past year, you had, uh, some of these larger P2P platforms that shut down. So you had like local Bitcoins shut down, uh, Paxful. I don't really know what happened at Paxful, but it like blew up or shut down somehow or another. And these are kind of like the main platforms that have been used in a lot of, I mean, not, not just Latin America, but worldwide to, to trade Bitcoins in a peer-to-peer -peer way. And I'm just wondering if like, if has this had any, has the shutdown of these platforms like had any like meaningful impact on uh, P2P usage or uh, crypto usage uh, in your view? They're, they're definitely the biggest platforms. They're not the only ones. And it happened in the middle of the period studied. So next year, are we going to have to reevaluate the peer-to-peer -peer pillar? Yes, absolutely. Like there's about 15 or more peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces, including probably one of the biggest ones, which is Binance peer-to-peer. But next year, we are going to have to totally reevaluate that category. And I've separately been wondering if it's at this point meaningfully different from what's happening on centralized exchanges or if it's just kind of... I, I think it's a category that we need to reassess given those closures, basically. And we will do that next year. Um, but it's they're not the those two are not the only two that are in that category and i think binance has largely captured the market share of those other platforms and there is still a need for peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces 
But um, I, I do think that we need to kind of revisit how we think about the role of peer to peer marketplaces, given the changing dynamics that we're seeing. Got it. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and yeah, I, yeah, I forgot to mention that Binance has, you know, they, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that Binance actually has, you know, probably the largest P2P marketplace in addition to having the largest <laughs> centralized exchange. Uh, and that's, they've obviously been able to capture a lot of that value, uh, a lot of that volume. Um, so moving, moving on here, um, you know, one of the things I find really noteworthy about, about the report, uh, this year's report in particular is that among the like the top 10 markets as far as adoption like the us is really the only one of those markets that would be considered you know a quote unquote like developed country or developed economy and and this is really one of the core reasons why i i started this this brazil crypto report project to begin with is just because i felt like some of the regions that are 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 uh, uh where adoption is happening most aren't getting enough coverage and um but really just kind of interested in, you know, your thoughts on, you know, just given like, it seems like there's a discrepancy between where the adoption is actually happening and like where a lot of kind of like the, the, like the mainstream crypto narratives and like just sort of energy and, you know, thought leadership is focused, right? Where, you know, the last couple of weeks it's been SBF trial, Bitcoin ETF stuff, but like, you know, in these other parts of the world, like there's a lot of other stuff happening. I'm just kind of curious as to like, you know, how do you view this discrepancy? Is this something that's, maybe is this like problematic? Is this, is this something that's maybe to be expected? Is this just maybe, maybe the people in these other countries just aren't, you know, as vocal on Twitter talking about these things as people in the U S uh, you know, how do you kind of view this discrepancy? I could not have done a better job characterizing a major problem than how you just, <laughs> how you just reference that. It's something that I think about a lot and it's actually, when you're in crypto, you have to, we have a, a pillar of um, like kind of core company values. And one of them, at least formerly, was strong beliefs loosely held. This is a strong belief that I have strongly held, which is that, which is that a lot of crypto activity is totally mischaracterized in the mainstream media. And it is misunderstood and it's a hot button topic that people are fast and loose with the opinions that they have formed about it. And um, seeing the major media cover these hedge fund stories, what one CEO said about crypto, what Elon Musk said about Doge is hard when we're seeing all, all of this crypto activity literally every day being used by people around the world, just not in you know, the United States and not creating a Twitter thread with every opinion that they have. And I think that it's kind of a, a, a probably a bigger a problem that is beyond just crypto, which is that it's not, and I already alluded to this, it's not kind of a big sexy story that oh, crypto continued to steadily grow in sub-Saharan Africa yet again, because what day, that's not an event, it's a trend over time. And so it's harder for people to, when when headlines move so fast, to feel like that's a major headline. And yeah, this discrepancy is a big problem. And that's why the geography report is one of the most important projects to me and our team. Um, and it's to s neutrally show that this is happening and try to raise awareness around the real use cases that are actually happening. Uh, well said, well said. Um, and then maybe maybe to kind of wrap up here, uh, we haven't really talked a whole lot about uh, 
Latam outside of Brazil, but maybe I'll kind of give you the floor uh, just to maybe talk about anything, any of the, anything interesting from the other countries in the region that uh, any other extra color you want to share, like Argentina, Venezuela, Mexico, Colombia, uh, anything interesting uh, that you found in some of these markets that you'd want to share? I think that one thing that we try to flesh out is the relationship between currency depreciation and uh, crypto adoption or policies enacted such as the Argentinian de-dollarization initiatives. And I think the fact that people can only hold a certain amount of dollar um, dollars in any given point. And so we, we associate those two things together. We look at the amount of adoption against the cur the rate of currency depreciation. This is not sufficient at all to answer that question. You like I, like I said before, you need to have a PhD dissertation to tease out a lot of, you know, confounding variables that would be impacting the adoption, but we do associate them together in our report. And there is an inverse relationship present, which would suggest that they are related. But, you know, if you're a PhD researcher or a master's researcher and you want to explore this, I highly encourage you to, to take that research on. It's a really good time to, to be answering these questions. So we looked at the relationship there for Venezuela and for Argentina, and we saw an inverse relationship, which would suggest that people are adopting cryptocurrency slowly and maybe potentially in response to currency depreciation. Although again, many, many caveats to that. And we talked a lot to people in the in those countries who were talking about the need to have a bridge to the US dollar or the excitement that there is this bridge to the US dollar. I think more than in Brazil, Argentina and Venezuela in particular are responding to specific economic events that they're facing within the country that would not be happening so much in Brazil. And then in Mexico, which was another country we spent a lot of time on, we learned a lot about international payments, remittances, and um, it's actually a really vibrant crypto market, a lot of startups, a lot of um, you see people investing and um, in Mexico. So it's not all about remittances there, although that is always referenced, I think, because it resonates with people who are familiar with um, with Mexico. So yeah, there's a lot there's a lot to unpack in there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 eventually when maybe once you're if you can grow your team a little bit, maybe you can start producing uh, you know hundred page reports on each of these regions, right? That would be I want to do that. <laughs> and the funny thing is is sometimes after I do these reports, I'll suddenly everyone thinks I'm an expert in every country, so I'll get questions <laughs> like what happened in Malaysia in March of 2022 and I'm like I don't <laughs> and, then, and then I want to go on a on a rabbit hole for Malaysia in 2022 but it's just there's too many countries <laughs> yeah yeah well I mean impressive work that you you and your team have put together here I mean it's really uh, it's hard to overstate just how like useful of a, of a report this is and how useful of a data set this is so really appreciate you uh, putting it together and then also want to thank you for coming on the show today to, to talk about your findings and um, I'll turn it back to you for any final thoughts and uh, how can folks get in touch if they have more questions or if they do want to learn about Malaysia uh, crypto adoption <laughs> in Malaysia in 2022. Um, okay. So you can get, you can download our research on our website. We have a lot of research that we put out. I think there was one day, two weeks ago where we put out five blogs in one day um, and it, not just specific to cryptocurrency. 
Um, if you want to learn about Malaysia, read our report and do then fly to Malaysia and ask some questions and then get back to me. <laughs> let me let me know. And um, yeah, we're just thanks. Thanks so much for having me. This is this is always a great podcast. So thank you. Amazing. Well, thanks so much, Kim, for your time. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And we will see you next time.